State Rep. Tom Demmer Dixon is here. He's the deputy Republican leader in Springfield and a spokesman on the state budget. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks a lot, Bill. Glad to be here. Since you're uh, new to the program, we should begin with you telling folks, who is Tom Demmer? Well, good question. I'm a, I'm state representative from Dixon. Uh, Dixon is my hometown. I was born and raised here. Um, outside the legislature, I work in uh, hospital administration at a small community hospital here in Dixon and been in the legislature for the last uh, eight years. And uh, in Springfield, I spend uh, most of my time on uh, the state budget and on health care policy uh, affecting the state. And uh, so both of those are pretty broad areas. And so it gets, uh, give, gives me an opportunity to work on, on quite a few different issues over the course of a year. And how would you describe the current state of state finances? Oh, well, you know, we're challenged as we have been for many years. Of course, this year we have the uh, added uh, burden and hurdles of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, what that's done to affect the state's economy, um, how that's affected uh, state receipts of revenue and income taxes, sales taxes, property taxes. Um, that's just added to the long-running financial problems the state was struggling with before anybody had ever heard of COVID. And so I, I think it's uh, Illinois is in a, in a unique position and not necessarily a positive unique position uh, of having to both wrestle with the unexpected and short-term impacts of COVID as well as the very much expected and long-running problems with a structural imbalance uh, budget and a, a budget that has um, led to billions of dollars in unpaid bills, uh, over $100 billion in unfunded pension liability, and uh, really a, a, a crisis budget process every year to deal with some of those impacts. And the uh, ruling Democrats don't seem interested in doing much real about the big liabilities, but they love to spend. What does that tell you? Well, it's always easier to spend uh, money, certainly easier to spend other people's money than it is to exercise uh, fiscal discipline. And, uh, you know, that's, that's been a, a problem, I think, in, uh, in democracies for a long time. You know, that this is a long-running issue in, in legislatures. The problem in Springfield is it's become the norm. It's become expected. Uh, you know, we, we right now, we're sitting in committee meetings voting on bills that have hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars uh, of financial impact. Um, and that's uh, not even a chief concern among folks who are voting for those bills. Uh, it's, it's very common that uh, I'll ask a, the sponsor of a bill how much it costs, what's going to be the, the cost on the state budget to implement this program. And uh, they don't even bother to have an answer. Uh, they, they, don't, uh, they don't care enough to find out how much it will cost, uh, how much it will impact the state budget going forward. Um, it's definitely a spend first mentality. And it uh, cumulatively adds up to billions and billions of dollars worth of pressure. And the state is about to get billions from the American Recovery Act from Washington. What are your hopes and fears about how the Democrats will want to spend that money? Well, that money is, uh, if, you, if you've been following bills that have been considered in the legislature in the last couple of weeks, that money's been spent three or four times over. Uh, I think that's where <laughs> our, our big um, fear should come from is uh, this money is not 
free bailout money that can go to fund new programs and expansion uh, of, of services. We, in the current fiscal year, uh, had a budget that relied on borrowing billions of dollars from the federal government just to make this year's budget work. We also have a backlog of unpaid bills that totals in the billions of dollars. Our first priority with receiving this money from the federal government should be to pay off that short-term debt. Uh, that's debt that we incurred for services this year, but it's going to have to be repaid in the next two and a half years. So that adds, that debt repayment adds to an already um, very precarious uh, state budget process. And so we've got to retire that debt first and foremost, not use it to, certainly not use it to fund recurring programs in the future. This is one-time revenue. If we expand programs that are that will continue to operate in the future and we pay for it with one-time revenue, we're going to find ourselves worse off than when we started. Now, one of those uh, bills that has been passed and in some cases signed are the pillars of the Black Caucus. There's one on health care. This is uh, something of expertise for you working at a hospital in Dixon. Uh, that you guys estimate would cost, if appropriated, five to twelve, perhaps fifteen billion dollars. What do you think of that? Well, some of these bills that have been considered have been so open-ended uh, and lacked detail about how they would actually be implemented that it's almost impossible to assign a cost figure to it. We know it's substantial. Uh, you know, any time the state government is is passing new laws, creating new programs, and leaving them open-ended, um, there's a potential that, you know, it could have a dramatic impact on the state budget. So that's been our concern with, with that uh, uh, health care pillar bill, as you described, uh, is that it creates new programs, it expands services, but it does so in such an open-ended way that it creates an expectation that the state budget is going to have to step in and provide billions of dollars in funding for these new programs. Now, the sponsor of the bill uh, in, in, floor, in the debate on the House floor said we should use this federal money to pay for these services. The problem is, as we just mentioned, the federal money comes once. These programs would cost us money every single year. Uh, and it's, it, would, it would put us in a position where, uh, you know, as soon as a program gets created, it's extremely difficult to roll it back. It's extremely difficult not to fund it in future years. And frankly, we can't afford to make those kind of promises given the state's financial condition. Would that bill nonetheless help rural hospitals like the one where you work? It's not really geared to help uh, rural hospitals. I, I, you know, again, these programs are, are pretty open-ended and ambiguous. Um, it might have some impact in certain parts of the state, but uh, th- these were not, uh, you know, these are not the areas where we've had real bipartisan work around investing in in um, healthcare, the healthcare system. We passed a bill uh, about a month ago. Uh, around hospital transformation. And this has been a, an ongoing effort, bipartisan effort over the last several years um, to use money that we actually have. And we have, we've set aside a certain amount of money to help hospitals in urban areas uh, and in very rural, very small hospitals, um, both reevaluate how they can best meet the needs of their community. Uh, that's how you do it responsibly. You you dedicate certain money that we already have, not hypothetical revenue. Uh, you put together a program that has specific criteria for eligibility on it. And importantly, in, in the program that we passed, 
there's a time limitation on it. You've got, you only have a certain number of years to get your program up and running, and then it has to be able to sustain itself. So we're providing some startup funding uh, for these kind of initiatives. Those are ways that we can meaningfully improve the healthcare system, uh, not by passing multi-billion dollar promises that the state budget has no capacity to keep. Now, as both sides put together a budget uh, for next fiscal year, are there any obvious savings that you Republicans see? Well, one of the areas that we've been um, really working to, to understand better is in the last two years, the governor's office has uh, requested uh, two different times that agency directors and department heads identify um, cost reductions within their agencies. I think this is an important part of budgeting at the state level is that this is not done uh, unilaterally by, by one place or another. The, the legislature um, can't you know, simply dictate uh, across the board that these changes will be made. If we want it to be effective, we want those savings to be real and, and not just you know, shifted from one pocket to another or put off for a future day, we have to engage with the department heads who are operating these agencies every single day. And so we've asked those agency heads to give us the options that they presented to the governor's office. Uh, tell us what those, what those areas are. If they were instructed to come up with 5% uh, reductions, how would they do it? How would they do it to make it realistic and to make it reasonable? Um, the problem is after the governor uh, requested those cuts from the agencies, he hasn't shared those with the legislature. He hasn't shared those with the public. In fact, there was a, a reporter who, who sought to get them through the Freedom of Information Act, and it was uh, rejected. And so there, there's a, a high level of secrecy around these cuts when, frankly, the, what we need around these proposals is transparency, and we need discussion, and we need uh, public vetting, and we need to have committee hearings to talk about the impact. Uh, that's how we can craft a budget that's uh, reasonable and sustainable, uh, not by one branch uh, keeping all the cards close to their vest. Mike Madigan is gone now as Speaker. What do you think of the new Speaker, Chris Welch? Uh, well, Speaker Welch has uh, talked about trying to turn the page and to, to make a, a new day in the Illinois House of Representatives. Um, we've seen something of uh, mixed signals so far, though, in, in the actual um, action instead of just the, the words. Uh, the House rules that were passed are virtually identical to the rules that had been in place under Speaker Madigan. Um, and so that was frustrating. We, we really thought that that would be an opportunity to show that the House is going to operate in a more transparent uh, way and in a way that wasn't uh, didn't have centralized power in the office of the Speaker quite as much. Um, but, you know, I, I take uh, Speaker Welch's word that he's, he's uh, seeking to demonstrate that things will be different under his speakership than they were under the 40 years of Madigan control. Um, but, you know, actions speak louder than words. And so I think it's going to be something that my colleagues in the House and people across the state of Illinois will have to watch and see whether uh, there really will be changes that empower rank and file legislators that make it a more transparent and collaborative process. Um, or whether we continue with a very top-heavy and centralized power structure. Speaker Welch is already talking about perhaps one day trying again to get the graduated income tax that voters rejected last fall. What do you think of that? Oh, I think the voters spoke loud and clear. Uh, that was a uh, the, the chief initiative of Illinois Democrats, of Governor Pritzker, was to raise uh, income taxes by over $3 billion dollars. 
The people of Illinois had to sign off on it, though, and, and they didn't. And they didn't even come close to signing off on it. Um, I think that initiative demonstrates that the people of Illinois are looking for solutions that are not simply tax, tax, tax. Um, again, this, it, the initiative wasn't even close to passing. And so to try again, I think, ignores the uh, voice of the people of Illinois who had a chance to weigh in, and they did weigh in, and they weighed in and said, this is not the solution that we're looking for. And, of course, pensions are the biggest problem. Uh, what do you Republicans think is the solution to the gigantic pension liability? Well, you know, the pension liability is uh, so large, so significant today that I don't think there's going to be one um, single solution to it. Um, instead, I, I think we need to look at a, a wide variety of options, which all together could make a meaningful change to it. We've put in place um, some pilot programs around voluntary buyouts of the pension system for people who are, uh, you know, no longer they're vested, but they're not active members anymore or we have a buyout in place for people at the point of retirement to help reduce the cost of living adjustments that come in. Um, you know, we, we also have, uh, I, I think, to, to be serious about implementing uh, new types of pension programs. We have in, in place today a kind of a hybrid pl- uh, program. It's, it hasn't been implemented. It's, it exists in state law, but it's a hybrid program that combines a um, small dollar amount defined benefit plan, small dollar pension plan that's similar to Social Security, and then puts on top of that a 401k style plan, just like people have in the private sector. Um, I think those are ways that we can help reduce the state's long-term unfunded liability um, while making the the pension system and the retirement benefits that are available for state workers uh, more reasonable and more affordable, given uh, the reality that every that workers in all other sectors and all other industries currently face. So we need to look at uh, kind of a a menu of options and all of the above strategy to help um, make steps to reducing the unfunded liability wherever we can. Uh, There's also an opportunity to test a model that's had bipartisan support in previous years, and that's a consideration model in which uh, uh, individual employees would would have to make an election about whether they wanted their future raises to go towards a pensionable salary or whether they wanted to keep a full cost of living adjustment. Those kind of options and those kind of choice scenarios, I think, would provide us with a number of different tools to help reduce our unfunded liability um, while passing what is a very strict constitutional test today. We're talking issues with State Rep. Tom Demmer of Dixon. Dixon, of course, Tom, is where Ronald Reagan grew up as a boy, And a big uh, contrast between your party, the Republican Party, is how it was under Ronald Reagan and how it is now under Donald Trump. Uh, And Trump has become kind of a litmus test for what kind of a Republican you want to be. Are you a uh, are you a Trumpster or are you a Ronald Reagan guy? (laughs) It's an interesting uh, choice to present. I I have to say I'm a Ronald Reagan guy. You know, I'm uh, here in Ronald Reagan's hometown of Dixon. He's. Uh, he's a legend. And, you know, the, one of the things that I like best about the, the approach that Ronald Reagan took, you know, his nickname was the great communicator. And he was uh, so effective at communicating a Republican message to people who, you know, didn't always identify themselves as Republicans. You know, one of his uh, his, his two uh, elections, the presidency in landslide fashion, uh, illustrated that you need to appeal to people who are 
in your party and identify themselves as, as members of your party, but also independents and moderates from the other party. You know, Reagan Democrats were a key um, constituency in racking up these huge margins of victory for, for President Reagan and really helping him to have the kind of uh, political power necessary to, to enact his agenda in Washington. And it, it, I think it comes back to that method of communication. He was able to um, explain and express what he was trying to do in a way that really was inclusive and brought new people into the arguments. Um, I, I think that, you know, in today's uh, political climate, there is a, a too much focus on um, trying to kind of own the other side, to really stick it to them and to have the most aggressive um, rhetoric and the most in-your-face tactics that you possibly can. What the, that, that ignores, though, is that there are a lot of people who are in the middle who are uncomfortable with that kind of tactic and strategy from either side. And we need to have folks, leaders in the party, who are looking to, to grow our, our coalition, who are looking to bring new people in through the strength and the power and the clarity of our arguments. And uh, that was one thing that, that uh, Ronald Reagan did well and, and something that you know, I think about quite often as we talk about what can we do to strengthen and rebuild the Republican Party in Illinois. So how big a mistake would it be for your national party to renominate Trump in 2024? Well, the, you know, voters across the country are going to have a choice, and I think there'll be plenty of candidates who are out there. We're also, you know, here we are in 2021. Who knows what the situation and landscape will be in 2024. But uh, again, I, I think instead of focusing on just a specific person or a specific individual, we need to be thinking about some of these, these broader concepts. What can we do to, to bring about the principles of conservatism? What can we do to talk about why Republicans offer an alternative um, to the kinds of policies that we're going to be seeing out of Washington and, and out of Springfield over the next couple of years. Um, those are the talking about principles, talking about uh, what we stand for. I think those are the ways that we can grow our coalition beyond uh, simply a coalition that's that's based around one person. Now, how vulnerable do you think J.B. Pritzker is to get reelected in uh, next year? Well, quite a few folks uh, across the political spectrum, I think, have uh, not been satisfied with Governor Pritzker's leadership. Um, there have been some polls recently indicating that uh, he, he hasn't grown any supporters, and he's um, grown, though, in the number of people who disapprove of, of the way that he's um, uh, served in office. Uh, I think a lot of people in Illinois have been frustrated by a very top-down approach that Governor Pritzker has taken um, in the last couple of years. I think we're going to see continued um, legislation coming out of Springfield that Governor Pritzker is signing into law that doesn't reflect the um, the thoughts and the, the viewpoints of a lot of people across the state of Illinois. Um, Governor Pritzker hasn't been concerned with uh, with growing the coalition on the Democratic side. He's been really with a kind of take it or leave it approach. Um, and I, I think that's that's not the right approach to take. And, and it's one that, you know, he's going to have a remarkably well-funded candidacy. He's you know, got billions of dollars of inherited wealth that he can put towards getting his name and his message out there. Um, but uh, I think maybe sometimes that makes him a little complacent and uh, doesn't uh, give him the sense of urgency that other candidates might feel in trying to appeal to people and trying to grow um, the coalition of supporters and make arguments to people and listen to people's perspectives. Uh, those things, I think, are uh, the qualifications and what make a good governor. And I don't think we've seen a lot of that behavior out of Governor Pritzker. 
And I see his approval rating has plummeted 18 points recently. Do you think he's vulnerable to to pandemic fatigue, even if he can argue that he followed the science and the metrics on how to deal with the pandemic? I think there is a little bit of uh, pandemic fatigue that that will happen. Uh, There's also, uh, you know, he says he's listening to the science and listening to the experts, yet we've seen a number of times where uh, he's changed his guidance midstream um, you know, he's he's suddenly decided that the science says something else <laughs> that he wants it to say. Um, I, I don't think we've seen, you know, these policies are not uh, without question or not above reproach. Uh, but he's, he's acted like anybody who questioned his approach to this was a science denier or a COVID denier. He, he called uh, anybody who opposed him, he called them carnival barkers during his state of the state address. Um, that ignores the, the complexity of the situation and ignores the fact that across the state of Illinois, there have been very different experiences with the effectiveness of um, COVID mitigation tactics and the way in which you know, local communities have dealt with that. Um, so I, I think there is a, a, definitely a, a sense of fatigue that might emerge there. It's also difficult for us to predict what uh, the world will look like in November of 2022 when, when he's on the ballot next. Uh, certainly, if we would have spoken, you know, just over a year ago, we, we couldn't have anticipated how this last year was going to go. And so uh, there, there certainly is a, uh, a reminder to us in all this that uh, life is unpredictable and uh, we, we shouldn't get too confident in our predictions. Who do you like as a potential Republican challenger to Pritzker in a couple of years? Give me one or two names. Well, you know, it's interesting. There are a couple of people who are talking about it right now. Um, I think I'm, I'm still in a wait and see mode. Um, I'd like to listen to arguments that various candidates are bringing forward. A uh, few people have announced. There are others who are speculated. We're still relatively early in the process. I think it's a little too early to say who's going to be a preferred or front runner candidate in this. Um, this is an opportunity for people to put their name, their ideas out there and, uh, you know, start to talk about what their vision for the state of Illinois is. But that really hasn't been done yet. It's, it's a little premature to say that. Adam Kinziger may be remapped out of his congressional district. What kind of governor would he make? Uh, that's a good question. You know, he's, he's been uh, focused in Washington uh, throughout his career. Um, you know, one of the things that I've really respected with his approach is as a, as a member of the armed services and, and uh, as somebody who really pays attention to foreign policy, he's always been a strong voice with a unique perspective on uh, the uh, United States military engagements abroad and uh, the way in which we relate with foreign governments. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one thing that I think he's always been uniquely able to speak to. If we talk about, though, you know, coming back to, to Illinois, uh, it's a it's a different set of issues. You know, it's all it's very much a domestic set of issues. And so uh, it's it's interesting to, to think about. But I'm, I'm not sure I, I know uh, uh, exactly what approach you might take in that circumstance. That's State Rep. Tom Demmer of Dixon, who's the uh, deputy Republican leader down in Springfield and the spokesman, as you can tell, on the state budget. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed it. And after a break, our roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long and Greg Hines. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Sir. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hi, Bill. Well, we're taping on the second anniversary of uh, Lori Lightfoot's election as mayor of Chicago, so we are duty-bound to uh, evaluate her, I think. And uh, I would give her above average 
marks, probably not an A because she's failed on some things. But uh, I have to respect that uh, her first two years have been dominated by calamities, a pandemic and a teacher strike and oceans of red ink in city finances, the uh, continuing scourge of gun violence, and until recently, Donald Trump. So I would, you know, not give her as low as a C. Uh, Greg, how would you evaluate Lori Lightfoot so far? Um, Bill, as you correctly posit, it's extremely difficult to judge public officials in this environment. Uh, uh, COVID has thrown an absolute wrench into any version of normality. Um, and frankly, uh, the mayor's performance in the, in the COVID pandemic has probably been her strong point. She's been aggressive. She's been assertive. Um, uh, one could argue that she's gone too far. She and the governor don't get along terribly well. And there's been some disputes over vaccine policy and other things. But uh, but she certainly grabbed the bull by the horn and provided leadership, which is what you want in the in the middle of a crisis. Um, you know, on the other hand, Bill. Uh, City finances are 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 are, are a mess. Um, uh, if if we if we if we avoided uh, a, a, an even bigger property tax increase than she pushed by uh, by some borrowing that now it's we're apparently not going to have to do because we're going to get extra money out of Washington from Joe Biden. Um, but that that's nothing not something she did. Um, uh, her relationships with with Springfield, her ability to get things done there, are terrible. Uh, as we as we tape this, uh, we're waiting at uh, a decision by Presker to sign off on two bills that she doesn't like. Uh, one which would restore bargaining rights to the Chicago Teachers Union, another one of which would uh, would pump up pensions for Chicago firefighters. Uh, neither one of which is good for city taxpayers, in my opinion. Um, uh, and you mentioned the crime problem, which is which just overrides everything. Um, yes, I know that COVID is, has, has sparked crime problems in, in, in cities all over the place, but I, I can't talk to, to public officials almost any day or a business guy any day who doesn't mention uh, carjackings and, and murder rates and whatever. Uh, and that stuff, uh, that stuff uh, hollows out all the other accomplishments. So in a difficult environment, I think the mayor has been doing the best she can. But, uh, uh, but man, I wish she'd lose the chip on her shoulder uh, that seems to come out far too often and start trying to work with other people a little more than she has. Yeah, there's no doubt that crime and politics are a big drag on uh, doing business in Chicago. Heather, how would you evaluate Mayor Lightfoot so far? Well, it's interesting because I think she has governed in her first two years as mayor as much less of a progressive than a reformer. And I think that there is a great deal of tension between what the progressive groups of Chicago wanted and expected from Mayor Lightfoot and what she has delivered. And I think the ongoing over what form elected oversight should take over the Chicago Police Department is, is a good example of that. Before she was mayor, she supported uh, a proposal that had been developed over several years by several community groups. But when she was in office, she announced that she no longer supported it because it took too much power away from the mayor. And as she likes to say, she's going to wear the jacket for crime problems, so she should have control of the police department. And I think that's just, I think, a fundamental example of the shift that she has made on several issues um, while in office. 
and that leaves her, uh, I think, vulnerable to a challenge from the left and at loggerheads with the much more progressive city council that was elected alongside her two years ago. And that will continue to be a challenge uh, as she finishes out her term and we all assume prepares to run for re-election. Yeah, I remember the days in the City Hall press room when she was just beginning that she faced so many calamities and then others have developed that she could easily be a one-term mayor. Well, Lynn, how about you? How do you evaluate uh, Mayor Lightfoot, Lightfoot so far? Well, I, first of all, I so defer to my colleagues because you cover her every day. So uh, let me just take you to the parallel universe of how the national uh, outlook on her is. And this has been true for Richard M. Daly and Rahm Emanuel. Uh, when you get to national mayoral, treatment of Chicago mayors and some other big city mayors, you know, there's kind of a forgetting all the aggravation, controversy, and bad decisions you might make, and just look at them as kind of a global temperature taker. So on the national stage, you know, she's done fine. She's made appearances on, uh, you know, cable shows, been used in some Sunday morning shows, and usually those are pretty easy for a Chicago mayor because there's never any questions that are really difficult and it's kind of broad strokes and usually an arena that's more in her favor, even when we were talking about her uh, problems with the Chicago Teachers Union. So there is a little split screen here between the the, the local uh, accurate reporting of people on the ground who know what's really going on and then the kind of softer treatment that you get when you go on a national interview in a national stage. And then tell us about the uh, vice president's visit with Lightfoot this coming Tuesday. What's going to be that all about? Well, here's what's interesting is that city hall said that this visit, and this will be the first visit to Chicago by Kamala Harris as vice president was done at the invitation of Mayor Lightfoot, who wants to show off everything the city has done about COVID equity. Now, clearly, if she wants to give a briefing to Kamala Harris, who she knows, who has been to Chicago before in her presidential campaign, you could just do a Zoom, a FaceTime, or a phone call if that's what you want. So Harris will be coming back east from a California uh, Easter weekend trip. She'll, she's in Los Angeles over the weekend. Then she goes to Oakland, where she was born for an event, and then she comes to Chicago on the way back on Tuesday. So uh, somehow this will show off an issue that intersects with every Democratic official in Illinois, and that is the the work on COVID equity, which is not easy, even among like-minded officials that are all for it. It's easier said than done in Chicago and the state of Illinois and you know, Governor Pritzker have all made Herculean efforts at tackling equity, which, as I said, much easier said than done. And so Harris, who represents the Biden administration, which has a huge commitment to COVID vaccine equity and other issues associated with the pandemic, will be here to presumably hear about what we're doing at some place, maybe a vaccine distribution center. Details still being firmed up. And Heather, take a minute to tell folks what COVID equity is and how difficult it's been for uh, Mayor Lightfoot to actually enact in Chicago. 
Well, we have seen throughout this first year of the pandemic that Black and Latino Chicagoans were significantly more likely than white Chicagoans to contract COVID, suffer from severe illness, and then die. And what the mayor has made the centerpiece of the vaccine rollout in Chicago is trying to put those people most at risk for severe illness and death from COVID at the front of that vaccine line. But it's been very, very difficult because Black and Latino Chicagoans are more likely to be hesitant to take the vaccine because they may have concerns about racist treatment by the healthcare system. They also may just live in neighborhoods that do not have easy access to doctors and hospitals or even know where to go to sign up for a vaccine appointment. Coupled with the fact that the supply of vaccines in Chicago has been significantly more limited than in other places throughout the country and specifically in Illinois, that has really put a yeoman's task on Mayor Lightfoot's to-do list of making sure that the people who need the vaccine the most, but perhaps are less likely to have access to the vaccine, get it. And so the mayor has really tried to do any number of different things, including setting aside doses for specific neighborhoods, specific zip codes, but it's been very difficult and it got off to a slow start even though the numbers are improving, uh, there's still quite a bit of work to be done on, on that front. Greg, do you think that the COVID equity issue is a big political issue or no? Uh, it is, uh, depending on how it eventually plays out, Bill. Um, this is uh, this is uh, this is not an easy situation, and I, and the health officials have uh, have my sympathy here in what they're trying to do. But man, some of this stuff is kind of awkward. Uh, uh, the numbers, as Heather suggested, indicate that the vaccination rates in the city have been slower, significantly slower uh, than in the state as a whole, uh, significantly slower than in the rest of Cook County. Um, that's not very good. Good. Um, uh, when you have a shortage like this, uh, things operate in the traditional Chicago model. The people who have connections, who are in a sharp, know what to do, get the vaccines, get taken care of first. Uh, that excludes a lot of uh, black and Latino people. But the mayor's solution to that is, is has been, you know, I'll just describe it and people can judge for themselves. Uh, one of the things they've done at the United Center, for instance, is, the, is they've targeted certain zip codes uh, and say, on these days, Everybody who lives in these zip codes uh, can come in and get a vaccine of any age, uh, 18 and up. Well, what that means is that a healthy, 20, perfectly healthy 20 or 21-year-old who happens to live in the right zip code under the mayor's system is getting priority over, say, somebody who's 64 who lives a mile away in a different zip code uh, who's had a heart attack. Um, none of this is perfect. Everybody here has my sympathy in trying to deal with it. Uh, I'm sure the mayor's people people are doing the best, but uh, it's difficult. It's difficult, and 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 it's and it's and as you kind of suggest, as we get into the thick of another city election season, there's lots of ammunition there for politicians to use. Yeah, uh, Lynn. Since we last gathered, Joe Biden rolled out his two and a quarter trillion—that's T for trillion—dollar uh, jobs plan. Uh, Tell us what is in it for the Chicago area. So nothing specific is in this proposal, and it's still a proposal, not reduced to legislative language. We're going to have a competition for projects. Every, every transit agency in Illinois will have a wish list. Every member of Congress will have a wish list. Uh, it may be that 
earmarks are fully back, and so our listeners know an earmark is a line item with a project as a, where a member of Congress can make a recommendation for a, pro, for a project rather than have the uh, the professionals, the career professionals in the transportation department, for example, evaluate a project. Uh, and I think there is a lot to be said for letting an elected official just pick stuff to be done rather than a career professional. Uh, it, you know, if you have a crumbling bridge, just fix it one way or the other. Now, the earmark process is very fraught to manipulation, to pressure from lobbyists, to bribes, to secret deals, a whole bunch of stuff we know through the years when they existed. Transparency helped. Earmarks used to be just in secret, and you wouldn't know about it, or you'd have to have a whole investigation to figure it out. So there will be sunlight and transparency, but I wish I could just tell you, well, we're going to extend the red line and we're going to do this or that. Nothing is set yet. Everything is fluid, and we just know that there, if this bill passes, which it won't probably pass in its current $2.2 trillion form because there aren't Republicans on it, uh, but something may come of this. Because when you're offering money and earmarks to members of Congress, it's hard even for Republicans to turn this down. But in general, almost every mode of transportation, and we have them all in Illinois, an airport, a walkway, a highway, a bridge, a port, we got them all, that among all these entities, some are going to get something. Yeah, I can uh, I can hear Paul Powell sell, saying I can smell the meat cooking yes. again, but yes. but oh, Heather, that's right. Heather, can City Hall at least be really happy about uh, what's in here for replacing lead pipes? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt that absence a massive amount of federal money. There is no way that the city can replace the lead service lines that up until 1987 were required by the city to connect individual homes and two flats to the city's water main system. Uh, And we now know that those pipes under specific circumstances have the ability to leach lead into drinking water, and there is no safe level of lead in drinking water, and it is particularly dangerous for children and pregnant women. And this has been a major issue. It was a major issue before Mayor Rahm Emanuel left office, and he basically said, look, it's up to the individual homeowners. Mayor Lightfoot has changed that approach. She says the city is going to start figuring out a way to address this. But this is a multi-billion dollar problem. So this gives the mayor a chance to say, we're going to develop a plan. And once that plan is in place, if this bill becomes law with that, with those funds earmarked, can get, we will be able to get that done, which would be a, a real uh, accomplishment in terms of, the, of, of protecting and improving Chicago's drinking water. Greg, what's your take on the Joe Biden two and a quarter trillion dollar plan? Well, my take on it is it's a really big ask. There's a lot of stuff in there that isn't conventional infrastructure. Uh, you think of infrastructure, you think of roads and bridges and airports. Uh, there's all kinds of other things, like lots of big assistance to semiconductor companies to help them compete against China. Uh, that's not what you would normally find in infrastructure package, and there's a lot of kind of softer social welfare things. Um, but the core of the project, Lynn is right that we don't know yet who's going to get what, and it's going to be a food fight, and if they're not careful, it's going it's to look very 
uh, Paul Polish. Um, but uh, but in general, spending a lot of money on roads and bridges and transportation stuff is good for Chicago and is good for Illinois because we exist because we're a transportation center. Uh, this is the this is the logistics capital of North America. It constantly needs more money for improvements uh, 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 for railroads, uh, airports, and everything else. So to the extent that the federal government is going to come up and put a big additional priority on that, that's good for us. We'll get our share. Hey, Lynn, we should talk about Ray LaHood. How surprised were you that he had turned up in the federal crosshairs some years ago after apparently lying about a loan he took from a foreign entity? Well, you know, it just is another disappointment of the people I have covered who I thought uh, would have the good judgment not to get in trouble. And oh, where Obama's lucky is that if, if, if this was disclosed why LaHood was still the transportation secretary, it would have been a, a, a big scandal. In, in this sense, now, the news came out from this California prosecutor when the whole thing was addressed, fine paid, and, and you kind of know how the story ends. The Obama uh, White House was very proud at the end of eight years of saying they never had a major scandal, and this could have been. I I have covered Ray LaHood for years. I just don't know how. When he talked about having financial pressure or whatever his problems were, uh, he was when he left office. Uh, I believe he became of counsel or some kind of advisor to a lobby law firm. And I just don't know what could have driven him to take this loan from somebody i mean here is the number one test that you, politicians are told if you don't want to if you're if you wonder if you should do something and then wonder how it would look like when someone writes a story on it don't do it and i believe we learned in this episode that you know the issue for ray is he didn't disclose this loan because he didn't want anyone to know about it well doesn't that tell you what you should know then don't do it <laughs> and Heather, oh, Rogi, can we can we put that in a, in a letter and give it to every public official when they take <laughs> office in the state, from top to bottom? Really, and, and Heather, I'm sure Rob Emanuel was relieved that it didn't pop up while he was doing his deal for the uh, the uh, River Walk with Ray LaHood. Absolutely. And what struck me was that Ray LaHood for uh, more than a decade now, dating back to 2008 when Barack Obama picked him to be his transportation secretary, this he was Illinois Democrats favorite Republican. And he was often, you know, invited to press conferences where somebody wanted to sort of make the point that whatever was happening was bipartisan and that it was possible for everybody to work together. And um, it's just, you know, I share Lynn and Greg's sort of amazement. I, I was shocked to see this pop up because he had that reputation of being a, a squeaky clean politician in a state that is anything but. He was also very accessible to the press. He was always ready for, uh, uh, you know, uh, a quote. Um, you know, I reached out to him when I was writing about Mayor Rahm Emanuel's attempts to become Joe Biden's transportation secretary. And Ray LaHood was everywhere talking about what a great transportation secretary Rahm Emanuel was would have made. So, uh, you know, there are multiple bullets 
votes that have perhaps have been dodged for multiple Democratic politicians. Um, but it is a, a sad end to his uh, career. Ray LaHood was, it was Rahm Emanuel who came up with, so it has been told, and so my reporting, I, I, without, I, I believe I'm recalling it right, it was Rahm Emanuel who thought of Ray as transportation secretary, uh, brought it to Obama, and Obama said fine. And, of course, Obama knew Ray from his time as a senator from Illinois, and Ray was always the Republican most, you know, he was known for actually in a formal way of trying to, he had a civility caucus. Uh, he was and also, he was, even though he ended up being able to help maneuver his son, Darren, into public life and eventually into a congressional seat after Aaron Schock uh, resigned, uh, he held kind of true to his moderate republicanism, not supporting Trump in 2020 when his son, Darren, was an Illinois co-chair for the Trump campaign. So he kind of remained true to this. So... Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, it, it all it all brings to mind Mike Ryko's old uh, informal motto for for municipal motto, "Ubus es mea," which would apply to the state. Where's mine? Well, now we know it applied to Ray. Yeah, really. Oh, yeah. Just sad. And all the more surprising when you remember that it was it was Ray LaHood in the speaker's chair during the House impeachment of Bill Clinton. I mean, it's just I was shocked as well. Well, we got to quit. My thanks to Lynn Sweet of the Sun Times. Greg Hines of Cranes and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Up next is Lauren Cohn. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. There is a new initiative aimed at boosting recovery efforts for neighborhood communities hit hard by the pandemic, and it's called Chicago Alfresco. Senior Director of Neighborhood Strategy at Choose Chicago, Rob Foytick, joins me to explain this. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Lauren. Happy to be here. So how does this work? Sure. Well, well, thanks for asking. It's, uh, it's really an integral part of True Chicago's push to get more folks into our neighborhoods uh, and one pillar of the city's broader initiative to open streets and create places for, for public life. So the way this program works, chambers of commerce, uh, special service area providers and other nonprofit uh, neighborhood organizations can apply to create long term active community spaces uh, that are either anchored by outdoor dining or which highlight uh, community-focused placemaking. And Choose Chicago, uh, we're, we're super happy. We've got financial support from Diageo, uh, and we'll be able to provide uh, grants to neighborhood organizations to help make that process happen. So how does uh, an organization, whether it's a restaurant or some other business, apply for a grant to get the money so that they can stay afloat? Sure, of course, and that's a very good question as well. And so unfortunately, the program isn't open to businesses per se. Uh, if businesses are interested in having some public way changes made in their area, whether that's uh, changing a curb lane into additional sidewalk space, uh, capping off a road and creating a neighborhood plaza, that sort of thing, they should chat with their local chamber of commerce or other neighborhood organization like an SSA uh, about that and see if there's interest at the community level to do that. Uh, and then the community organization can apply at chicagoalfresco.com. So from your perspective, how are we doing in terms of our reopening and getting maybe the restaurants who have been struggling, you know, inching along further? Are we seeing any progress? Well, you know, look, the last year obviously was just down across the board, um, you know, uh, from hotels to restaurants, you know, 75, 80 percent loss. 
uh, you know, depending on, on what you're looking at. But I, I, we're looking good now. The, the, the forecast is optimistic. Uh, we see Major League Baseball resuming with fans in the stands. Uh, major concerts booked for later this summer at Wrigley as well, uh, for example. So, you know, we can't predict what future tourism numbers are going to look like. Um, you know, I, I, obviously we're seeing a, a little bit of an uptick in the COVID numbers. Um, but, but we're optimistic. Folks are getting vaccinated. Uh, folks are getting back out. And there's certainly uh, an energy, I think. People want to get out and, uh, and, and see our city. And it's really our priority to make sure that they're also visiting our diverse and vibrant and safe neighborhoods, too. When I walk around, I see people more out and about, especially on places like the Riverwalk. And I wonder if they're tourists. And tourism has been such a huge revenue source for the city. Do you see any tourists coming back, even if they're from our neighboring states and they're allowed in now? Yeah, so, you know, we're starting to see those trends pick up when you look at hotel rooms uh, as, a, as a metric of visitors. That is ticking up as well. Um, so, you know, can't quite get into the granularity of where those folks have come from just yet. Um, but, but we do see numbers increasing and folks are coming to stay in the city. All right. And is there a website or anything else that people can go to if they're looking for, you know, information or help out there? Uh, your website that you can share with us. Great. Yeah. Uh, neighborhood organizations can find more information at www.chicagoalfresco.com. Great. Rob Foytick, who is the Senior Director, Neighborhood Strategy, Choose Chicago. Thank you so much for joining me. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago.